Our New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. And you can find that in page 573 on your pa- in the paperback Bibles. And when the hour came, he reclined at a table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another. Which of them could it be who is going to do this? The sermon text is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. And you can find that on page 426 in your Bibles. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. You guys let me know if this is too loud. Uh, oftentimes my voice can get out of control, and so uh, I don't want to wake anybody sleeping. <laughs> and I will assume that if your eyes are closed, you're not sleeping, but you're praying. And uh, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. I want you to know that there's a, uh, a warp and a woof to this service. It's not just that you come and, uh, and you have this transactional experience. In fact, it, it, worship isn't about a transaction at all. Worship is about us going before God and uh, seeing him for who he is and bowing our knees. And that's a tough thing, isn't it? It's a tough thing to kneel on a hard floor, but it's a tough thing for a hard heart like mine to kneel. I want you to know uh, I'm not a guest to you, uh, and this is the weird thing about our church. Uh, I have the privilege of being a pastor in your church. Um, I don't know many of you. I'm learning names slowly but surely. Uh, And I want you to know it's a huge honor to be with you. And as Logan said, 
one of the things that we love doing more than anything else uh, for the folks that God has given us to pastor is to pray. Because we know that in preaching, there's a lot of foolishness, right? You, you would know me. If you hung out with me, you'd go, why would I ever listen to that guy? And you would be right to say that. But what we believe is that we are united not by uh, a sense of wisdom, not by a, a, an even shared understanding, a theology of who God is, but we're united by his spirit. And here's the amazing mystery of today. God has promised that where his people are gathered, he dwells among us by his spirit. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invoke that spirit. You go, man, that sounds familiar. Invocation. That's right. I want to invoke that spirit to come and plant these seeds of his word deep in our hearts. All right? I need it. And maybe you do too. Let's pray. Father, we come together and we confess to you our need. We, um, we're sitting before this table and what we really want to do is eat. And it's really hard to listen because we want to eat because our need is so evident to us. Father, I pray that those of us whose eyes are filled with tears, that you, this morning, would give us a foretaste of heaven as you wipe them away. And those of us whose hearts are filled with anxiety, you would bring great relief. And those of us who couldn't feel more distant from everything that we have walked through together thus far this morning that you would take the distance away and Holy Spirit by your power would you make Jesus known to us this morning Father thank you for giving us each other thank you for the singing thank you for presence. Thank you for your word. And now, Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I've got um, old children, 17, 15, and 12. And uh, I used to try to play video games with them. Uh, the ones I remember the most are Fruit Ninja, which you might remember. I think I still have calluses on my finger from swiping uh, I did get good enough to use both thumbs at one point in time, but there's no way I could do it anymore. Uh, I remember Flappy Birds, which I was never very good at. And uh, I still have it, though, and I hear it's worth a lot of money. If you can download it off of my account, you can, you can have it for free. I'll give it to you because I haven't used it in forever. Um, but the one I remember is Tetris, and uh, that's because I'm that old, and Tetris was really cool when it first came out. And now it just looks like to my kids a bunch of lines falling through space. What I want you to know is that this passage today is, is like Tetris for, for Christianity. It's like Tetris for, for Scripture. It's all these words and ideas that you've seen actually line up and come together. And uh, that's what scares me the most about this passage, because I long for it to be that way for you. And, uh, and yet I feel dependent uh, on the Holy Spirit to bring that kind of clarity. And so I want to make sure that you have your Bibles turned, or maybe, yeah, it's not up there anymore, um, and I'm sort of standing in the way, so it would be distracting if it were written across my face, New Covenant. You probably wouldn't be able to pay attention. But the Bibles that are in front of you on page 427 is where you're going to find this passage, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. 
page 427. And it's a pretty seminal passage, uh, not only for Jeremiah. Do you remember we've been through Jeremiah, uh, I don't know, nine, ten times now. We've had sermons in Jeremiah. You guys get to hear from Logan one more time, and I'm very thankful for that because he, he knows you so much better, and he's going to be able to fix everything that, I, that I've said incorrectly today. Um, but the other good thing is, is that we are finishing up Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, we've been talking out in Newton how that's sort of the seminal passage of understanding Jeremiah. It's got three parts to it. It's got this idea that people, all human beings, are related to God in this thing called covenant. Um, then, the, then the second part of that passage in Jeremiah 17 is we got a really big problem. And the problem is our hearts don't want to be related to God, at least not in the way that he wants to be related to us. And then the, the end of Jeremiah 17 actually is God's big solution. It's what he's going to do. It's how he's going to work, how he's going to make it all right. This is the next to last passage, and this is about God's solution. This is, again, this portion of Jeremiah that's really good news. And what it does for us in many ways is it fits together almost the entire Bible. Um, almost what it means to be a Christian. And so the first thing that I want to tell you is that if you have thought of Christianity as anything other than relational, um, you've missed Christianity. You've missed what it's about. This is the first of, of three things I want to talk to you about. But the first component of Christianity that we're reminded of in this section is that it's all about our relationship with God. Now, what does that mean that it's not about? What that means that Christianity is not about is a way by which your life is made easier. That's not what it's about. Uh, there's a woman in our congregation that's so excited because she has learned how to meditate, and, and she's meditating a lot. And she says, I wonder how I combine this with Christianity because meditation seems to make my life work. And I want you to know that from the beginning, uh, from this very central piece that says in these four verses, this idea of covenant over and over. Look at what it says in verse 21, or 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That this idea of God's covenanting with us isn't about making our lives work. In fact, the one thing that is promised in all of Scripture because human beings are fallen and we are all sinful, is that we will suffer. That's been forced in front of us front and center, right? Front and center in the last three days as we've considered the bombings in Paris, hasn't it? Right in front of our faces. You can't deny it. My wife read a post on her Facebook feed from a woman who lives in Beirut, Lebanon. And she goes, you know, it's great that Facebook now has an I'm safe box checked for all the people in Paris. But what about those in Beirut where the bombing has been happening ad infinitum for years and years and years? We cannot deny that we live in a broken and a fallen world and that suffering is part of who we are as human beings living in that world. And Christianity is not about at core making our lives work. Nor is Christianity at core this idea of figuring out how to make an impersonal connection to a deity. How to just create something so, so whatever is up there transcendent for me is fine with me. And, and I will engage with that sense of deity, the, the plurality of the pantheon of Hinduism and of saying, hey, look, I'm just trying to, to, to get rid of this, this, this sense that I owe something to someone. That's not at core what Christianity is about. And to the extent 
that that has been what you have thought about Christianity, Christianity doesn't make sense to you. And I would even say, as a Christian, I slip into this transactional interaction with God of saying, you know, my life is not going well. I need to go to church. And what, what usually is behind that idea? What's usually behind that idea is, look, my life's not going well. I need to, to genuflect. I need to, I need to bow down before God. I need to pay him something so that and then he'll start treating me right. I got to give so that he gives something to me. That's what we call religion, and that's not what Christianity is either. But Christianity is at core relationship, and that's what this passage is all about. And that's why it's seminal for us to understand this passage. If the Tetris of what we understand, the Bible, the words that we have in our minds, you know, covenant, testament, new covenant, old covenant, old testament, new covenant, if any of that stuff is going to come together, we've got to understand that this idea of covenant means at its center that Christianity is about relationship. Listen to these these two verses, 31 and 32 then, in that context. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Do you hear the relational content of that passage God has from the very beginning of making himself known way back to Genesis makes himself known for one reason and one reason only relationship relationship between human beings women and men created in the image of God that we would know him and as that quote said of Stott be known by him that that's why God ever spoke in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth it was for relationship now you guys know how the story goes right from the very beginning it's always been about relationship and you know how the story goes because there in in the very beginning there there in relationship we have a problem and that's what this passage is talking about needing a new covenant not like the old covenant The covenant that we have a real problem with was the covenant made with Adam and Eve. This agreement that God made with Adam and Eve in in the garden. When God put in the garden this tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the middle of the garden. And God said, look, I'm giving you everything. But of that tree, I don't want you to eat of that tree. Don't eat of that tree. And in so saying, he said, trust me. Don't eat of that tree. But what happened to Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve didn't trust God, right? They were tempted by one who came to them and said, God isn't really for you. He is against you. He's against you. And see, those are the whisperings that are deep in all of our hearts that lead us to this place of thinking that Christianity is anything other than relational. The whispering that says God is against us. And so as we talk theologically about the Bible in this covenant of works with Adam and Eve, don't do this, don't eat from the tree, and you will have perfect relationship with God, right? That Adam and Eve turned and they said, no, we don't believe God. We're going to believe the one who tempts us, our own hearts even, and we're going to eat from that tree. 
And they did. And this, this covenant, this promise that God had made, don't eat from this, I will be with you forever, is broken. And what happens to Adam and Eve? They're cast out of the garden, right? And immediately upon them being cast out of the garden, God makes a covenant with them. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You ought to go back and read it. It's, it's amazing how it works. God covenants with Adam and Eve, and he says to them, even in the midst of their curses, the curses that everything that Adam's going to try to do is going to be frustrated, the curse that, that Adam and Eve's relationship is going to be frustrated, the curse that, that says that Eve is going to have great pain in childbearing. All these curses are given. But in the middle of those curses, Genesis 3.15, is this birth of a new promise. This covenant of grace that says the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. And you see, there is, as I explained to my seventh, my seventh grade daughter, a thread that's woven through the tapestry of the scripture that starts in Genesis 3 and begins to be woven throughout it called this covenant of grace. And this covenant of grace goes in and out. And the question is, okay, if, 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 if relationship with God is all, if Christianity is all about relationship with God, then, then on what conditions? Is it conditional or unconditional? God's love for me, the way he feels about me. How do I understand it? And I want to say that we get these pictures of it in amazing ways throughout all of Scripture. With Adam and Eve, we hear this unconditional promise. The head, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. One day, this echo, this, this cry, it, 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 it's, the, it's, it's, it's the note above the note, right? That haunts our minds that one day we will be free. And this deep desire for that freedom, right? Then it goes on through, and we see another example of it given to Noah. Remember how God decided he's going to crush or, or, or cleanse the earth by sending in a flood? And, and God gives the promise of, 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 of never flooding the earth again, and he gives the rainbow. And he says, I promise you, as long as there is day and night and, and seasons, and as long as the sun is in the sky, I will never flood the earth again. It's a promise. It's unconditional. That's not how I'm going to bring justice in the earth. Unconditional. Abraham is another one. Comes to Abraham, and God says, I'm going to bless the nations through you as long as you put your faith in me. Right? And you get this unconditional promise that he comes to Abraham and takes him out of his father's land. He goes, if you'll leave your father's land, I'm going to bless the world through you. And it, it seems unconditional and conditional. Faith, faith is a condition, right? How do we understand that? Then we follow the line through in Abraham and get all the way to Moses. And, and this is the covenant that is mentioned here, right? This covenant that is the fullest orb sense of kind of the revealing of this covenant of grace thus far. And it says this, the new covenant that I'm going to make is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember this story? Do you remember how the, uh, through Abraham's line, God had blessed 
his line. And, and Joseph, one of, the, one of the 12 brothers, ends up moving to Egypt. Remember, his brothers sold him into slavery and he got into Egypt. And then the brothers came and they wanted to be, they wanted to be fed and to be cared for. And so he, he, he forgives his brothers and they all come together. And in this nation of Israel, these Hebrews began to grow in Egypt and they become a strong nation. And, and that's when the Egyptians enslaved them. And that's when, as they're enslaved, Pharaoh is so afraid that he begins to kill all the babies, right? And he kills the newborn babies because he doesn't want the, the, the Hebrews to become more and more powerful. And that's when Moses' mother in faith gives birth to Moses and puts him in a basket and shoves him down the Nile River, floating him, as it were, to the, to the daughter of Pharaoh that he might be saved. And through Moses, God brings his people out of Egypt and he promises them a land. And he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people if you will follow me, if you will obey me. And then you know the, 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 the way that it goes. He, he gives them the Ten Commandments. He writes it on tablets of stone. He gives it to them. And Moses reads these Ten Commandments and all of the people say, we're going to do everything that you've said. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And you want to know what Moses does? Moses kills a big bull and he takes the water and he mixes it. Or he takes the blood and he mixes it with water and he he dips this this branch that that would be like having cotton balls at the end of a long branch. He dips it in there. And as the people are walking by, he shakes it on them so that the blood of the covenant is shaked on them. The blood of the covenant. This thing that says we will obey God and God promises to bless us, be with us, and to give us the land. This conditionality, right? So much so that this is the covenant that begins to shape from Exodus forward all of the Old Testament. Well, you know the story of Jeremiah as Chad and Logan have been teaching it. That, that the nation of Israel pulls away from God and says, I don't want anything to do with you. Not the way that you want it. We want it our way. And this is where my heart is pulled into the heart of Israel. I just say, I want it my way too. That's also how I want it. I want it my way, God. I want you to respond to me, not me to respond to you. And the nation of Israel is broken down over years and years. Throughout the times of the judges and then into the times of the kings, we have this high point with King David. And God makes another covenant with King David and says, through your line, David, I'm going to bless the entire world. And you will never have one that is not of your line on the throne of David forever and ever. This unconditional promise and this covenant that God makes with us, it has this nature of it within the Israelites of this conditional and this unconditional nature. And you go, well, is the covenant of grace conditional or is it unconditional? And really the only answer is yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It is both conditional and unconditional as God makes these promises known throughout history. Well, you know that Jeremiah is one of the prophets that finally the nation of Israel is divided up into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has been sent off into exile, and now the southern kingdom is being crushed by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is writing, and he's saying, I want you to know that you're going to be in Babylon for a long time. So last week you heard about Jeremiah 29. And then you're going to be there, you know, plant vineyards, grow gardens, you know, have children, have your children marry, have them have children, because you're going to be there for 70 years. You're going to be there a long time. You're in exile. But God has plans for you. 
Jeremiah says. He knows you. He has plans for you. And God said, while you're in exile, I want you to seek the welfare of the nations where I've sent you. I want you to pray on that on behalf of that nation, for in their welfare, you're going to find your welfare, right? And you get this amazing picture of God doing something new. And what God does here in Jeremiah 31 is reveal that newness. He says in comparison to the covenant that has been revealed thus far, that it's going to be a new covenant. It's going to be a brand new understanding of it. He says, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. And then in verse 33, it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. You see, this unconditional aspect of the covenant really does highlight our complete need and God's unbelievable mercy and generosity, his compassion and his provision. The conditional aspect of this covenant of grace shows us God's justice. When the law is given, it is a gracious thing that the law is given because it shows us who God is in his holiness, but also our need and our brokenness, what we cannot do. And that's why in that time we were driven, we were driven to needing a sacrifice. The Israelites needed that sacrifice, that sacrificial system. But here in this new covenant, instead of the law being written on tablets and handed to them that they would know who God is, God says in this new covenant, I'm going to write my law on the tablet of your heart. I'm going to inscribe who I am on the inside of your heart. What was external becomes internal. What was mediated by priests and by the death of animals becomes mediated by Christ and by the spirit that he sends. You see, this amazing thing happens when we see the conditionality of God's covenant relationship with us, obedience, we begin to understand his holiness, but our rebellion. It suddenly makes sense to us. And it goes, yes, that's who I am. But the amazing thing is that in this new covenant where God has provided something new that had never been seen before, in those days, it says, what we find is that God begins to deal with us and our deepest problem. Now, the interesting thing is in the old covenant, the covenant was inaugurated. It was started by the death of this animal and the blood was taken into the hyssop branch and it was shaken on the people. And, and, and that's when they said, we'll do it and going out from there, you know, point A and moving forward. 
So we understand that the Old Testament is, is, the, is, the, is the account of the Old Covenant, right? This covenant that was administered through the law that showed us our need, but didn't have the power to save us. And when it says in verse 33, in this covenant I will make it with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, uh, after those days is what I want you to see. After what days? And what we begin to understand is that the last prophet of the Old Covenant was actually not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. It was actually this prophet named John the Baptist who saw Jesus one day and said, Look, there he goes, Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And there we begin to see that there is going to be a lamb provided, a new lamb, Jesus, provided by God himself, the very son of God, sacrificed on our behalf. So that this new covenant, as it's called, this new way of God dealing with people, dealing with us as as individuals in our very hearts, knowing him is what happened when Jesus came. St. Jerome is the one who first translated the Bible into Latin. And when he did, he's the one that named the New Testament, the New Testament, and the Old Testament, the Old Testament. And he used that word testament because in Latin, testamentum, it actually means covenant. And he's saying in the Old Covenant, this is how grace was understood through, through our need because the law broke us down. Do you know that the writer of Hebrews reminds us that in Leviticus, every time an animal was sacrificed, it was for unintentional sin, not intentional sin, for unintentional sin. So that when we sin, when we tell God in rebellion, we want nothing to do with you, we're going to do it our way. There is no sacrifice for that sin. And it leaves us wanting and trusting in God. What is going to be the sacrifice for that sin? How are you going to bring it? Thus comes Jesus, the one who says of this very cup that we're about to participate in, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's the cup of my blood, which is shed for the remission of your sins. And do you know what's amazing? What's even more amazing is that this covenant is no longer just with the nation of Israel, no longer made with just the people of Abraham's descent ethnically, but is made with anyone who puts their faith and trust in God. That's why it says no more will you be telling your neighbor, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. This is an amazing thing. This new covenant that explodes not just for the nation of Israel, but for all the nations of the world. And do you see that this is the fulfillment of what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17 when he says, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus, who the writer of Matthew makes it clear, is the son of David because the covenant given to David, David, he was promised that there would be one that reigns on his throne forever of his lineage. 
And that's why it's a big deal that who Jesus came from. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. One writer wrote it this way, the last prophet of the old covenant identifies Jesus as the last lamb. Prior to this, there had been tens of thousands of sacrifices made in the temple. But now we see that all the animals supplied by men are to be replaced by this new lamb that God is providing. That's who Jesus is. The amazing thing is that testament also means you know, the last will and testament, like if I were dying and I were telling people what's going to happen after my death and where my stuff was going to go. When the New Testament is written, Jesus himself is the one who writes that and says, with my blood, I am purchasing men and women for God. And these are mine. This idea of the New Testament. It's the same story that God has created from the very beginning because Christianity is about relationship. And it is his fulfilling of the covenant of grace in Christ in this new way, this way that had never been seen before, providing Christ in his perfection, God become human being so that when he dies, he's no lamb that dies. Whose blood can't cover my sins? I'm not a lamb. Look, I'm a mess, but I'm no lamb, right? You're not a lamb. You're a human being created in the image of God. And so God had to send one created in his image, Jesus become human being, that our sins would be forgiven, that we would be set free. Do you see that it's conditioned on Jesus' perfection, his obedience? But it's unconditional to you and me for all who would put their trust in him. Logan read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How does this matter in your life today and mine? I want to say, how do you relate to God? Do you relate to God with fear? Are you afraid of him? Do you think to yourself, man, I just got to act right today because if I don't act right today, God's going to come get me. Like the divine boogeyman, right? Do you relate to God with anger? I'm really mad at what he's done in my life. How he's shaped my life. The difficulties that I carry. The suffering that I have. I'm mad at God. Are you filled with pride? Of course God would love me. I mean, look at me. I, I'm lovable, right? Why would God not love me? When we engage with God that way, we are demonstrating that we're living in the old covenant. The covenant that is earned. The covenant that has laws that are written outside of us that scare us to death. The covenant that says, look, I'm keeping this, so you owe this to me, God. And maybe you say, I'm not even that close. I'm still back dealing with the covenant of works that Adam and Eve did. I want nothing to do with God. And you see, the scope of the Bible helps you understand how that works. It's amazing. Or is your life marked by thankfulness, humility, and another kind of fear? You know the song that we probably all know, whether you've grown up in the church or not? Amazing Grace. <laughs> we probably all know it, right, in some way. 
You ever heard that line that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved? Isn't that interesting? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." Here we see that grace. The grace of God who sent Jesus. God is so great and he loved you so much that you would be known by him. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." Do you live with that kind of fear? The fear that pulls you in. The fear that makes you want to know God. The fear that longs for that intimacy. Because you hear it in the end of this passage, right? No longer shall each one tell his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't it amazing the lengths to which God went to pursue us? I want you to know I am the one, not the 99. I am the one who went astray. This passage makes that very clear. And God came after me. I want to ask you a question. Is God pursuing you? Do you know why he's pursuing you? Because he will go to any lengths to get a hold of you. Until the last of your days, from the youngest of us here to the oldest of us here, God is a God who pursues and has made himself that way. He sent Jesus that we might know the forgiveness of sins, that he would remember our iniquity no more, that we might know him. Here's the last thing. It changes the way that we interface with others. If we believe that Christianity is about relationship and relationship restored because of the new covenant that he's made with us in Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because no more is it about us versus them. It's not about us versus them anymore. That's not what this is about. This is about identification with each other's weakness, with the brokenness of humanity, with our own sense of rebellion, that we might go and tell others the good news of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Tetris is hard to get a hold of. I know it. Some of the blocks are crooked. You know, they turn right in the middle. And you thought that you had it in the right spot and it gets jammed. That's why we need each other. We need to keep working this out together. But I want you to know that this passage is central to what it means to understand the Bible from creation to fall to redemption. Redemption by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to one day all things being made new. Everything. It's why we pray for JP. It's why we pray for Roxbury. It's why we pray for Newton. It's why we pray for Roslindale. It's why we seek the welfare of the places where God has sent us. Because God has sent his son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin.
no more. Do you want to be fed with that knowledge today?